see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Welcome to the new year of 2018. Today, we're going to have an interesting and hopefully very educational interview with Paul Austin. Paul Austin is the founder of something called The Third Wave. The Third Wave is a new era of psychedelic use. Paul talks about the third wave as being something that will change our mainstream culture and how it perceives psychedelic use. He talks about an era of psychedelic use defined by practical, measured uses for specific purposes, not for dropping out, as Leary and Alpert recommended in the 60s, but for integrating psychedelics into our mainstream culture. Stay tuned for Paul Austin and the Third Wave. But first, a few editorial notes and news and notes in psychology and medicine. Before I say anything further, I should mention that everything that you hear on this program will be coming from myself, my trusty engineer Mike Delora, and our guest Paul Austin. Nothing we say today should be represented as coming from KZYX or any of its employees. None of it should be related to National Public Radio. Thank you for that. So, how are you addressing the new year with regard to your health? Are you making New Year's resolutions? And if so, are you making New Year's resolutions to enhance your health? Is this the time you're going to finally do it? Is this the time you're going to set a time for an exercise program? Or is this a time you're going to integrate exercise into your daily life, as we heard people do with the blue zones? Remember those blue zones, five areas of the world where people live 10 years longer than the rest of us? And not only that, but they live 10 years longer and more robustly. By the way, we're going to hear from Butner and the blue zones uh, at a, a, uh, an interview right here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics in February. But now, back to what are we doing? What are we doing with regard to our health? The Blue Zone people, as you recall, build exercise into their day. They do things which we would consider to be inconvenient. They walk. They deliver things by hand. They don't jump in vehicles to go three or four blocks. They walk three or four blocks. They sort of do yoga the way dogs do yoga. Remember, dogs don't go to a class for an hour. Dogs walk along and all of a sudden you see them stop and stretch. People in the blue zones build exercise into their daily lives. Something I'm working on doing, and I hope you're working on doing building some form of exercise into your daily life, because as you've heard me saying on this program for the last 15 years, reports are coming in from all over the world about the health benefits of exercise. The other major components, of course, 
for living healthily are getting enough rest, nutrition, eating clean food, eating the right food, not eating food that will clog us up, not eating food that will add excess calories and put us in a condition that 60, no, it's no longer, I almost aired and reported to you as I have in the past that 67% of the United States are now obese and overweight. No longer true. We're up to 71.2%. And remember that figure is supposed to go up to 87% by the year 2030. Given how quickly it's gone from 67% to 71.2%, we are on track to be at 87% of the United States public obese or overweight by the year 2030. Let's do everything we can not to join that particular group. It is so detrimental to our health. All kinds of things can be done for the new year. What else? Cutting back on alcohol definitely should be on all of our lists. Alcohol is deeply in the American culture. It's in so many cultures. In fact, there was one time when it was reported that the whole country of England was drunk for a hundred years from the poorest person to the king. But alcohol dries out the body, adds calories, creates havoc with the liver. You know what I'm saying. I'm probably boring you with all this talk. But what it all adds up to is I hope we all put in some time planning what we're going to do to be more more healthy, more healthy this year, eh? A little note on coffee. I was just reading about coffee, and it turns out that coffee, like many addictive substances, creates a tolerance. So if you drink coffee every day, you're not going to get that little charge that we get from coffee. It'll take more coffee and more coffee and more coffee. The good news is, If you quit coffee for a couple of weeks, you'll be back to ground zero, and that one cup of coffee will give you a little boost. A little boost. That's what we're going to be talking about today with Paul Austin, founder of The Third Wave, because he's going to be talking about something called microdosing with psychedelics that do give you a little boost. Paul Austin has been featured in Rolling Stone, in Business Insider, in WebMD, in the New York Times, in Playboy, and even in The Economist for his work on the third wave. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Paul. Hey, thank you, Richard. It's, it's great to be here. Paul, let's take it right from the top. What is the third wave? Yeah, so I think you, you, know, you encapsulated it really well uh, with the introduction. From, from our perspective, the third wave of psychedelics is uh, you know, brought about by... Uh, excuse me, Paul, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Could you uh, move your mouth just back a little bit from whatever device you're speaking into? We're getting some kind of vibration here. Yep, hold on, let me adjust my audio. Oh, terrific. Is this better? Much better. Okay, fantastic. So uh, so the third wave is, um, you know, it's been brought about by recent the recent developments in cannabis legalization, and a lot of the clinical research um, that's coming out of places like Johns Hopkins and NYU, uh, with the first wave being indigenous use of psychedelics for thousands of years in places like the Amazon and ancient Greece, the second wave being the counterculture in the 1960s, and now the third wave 
um, being the practical measured use, where it's less about the experience and more about how is your life tangibly improving as a result of responsible psychedelic use. And you're also talking about the culture's fear. There's a fear of psychedelics, and there's a fear of negative repercussions. And you're talking about a way of embracing psychedelics for their upside. What are these, where do these fears come from? Why are people afraid of a medicine? Yeah, I think, you know, the first is just because of uh, political kind of um, maneuvering, particularly from the Nixon administration and the war on drugs. I think with what happened in the 60s uh, with particularly LSD and Timothy Leary is it was very traumatizing uh, and destabilizing for our culture. So I think as a result of that, um, there's a lot of education around psychedelics that was largely misinformed and that focused mostly on what are all the negative or bad things that could happen. And when I started to kind of, you know, get into psychedelics myself and really dig into the research and start to understand it, to me it looked the exact opposite. I mean, obviously, you know, psychedelics do have a risk profile and they do need to be used in, in a proper set and setting. Um, but from my perspective, the benefits of them are far outweigh the potential risks. And so, um, you know, that's, I wanted to then build sort of a conversation around that in terms of, I knew there were a lot of people who were using psychedelics um, on their own, um, but because of the cultural stigma and fear around it, they didn't feel comfortable speaking about it in public. So the, the focus of the third wave then in building that was to create an engaged community where people could actually feel comfortable and open in talking about uh, their experiences with others and, and root those experiences in, you know, scientific evidence and, you know, credible anecdotal reports. Let's go back a little bit in your life, Paul, and tell us, how did you get interested in this topic? Uh, was this something that started in your childhood? Did it come to you later on? Or, you know, where, where, what generated interest in psychedelic and psychedelic medicine? Yeah, so my, my story is, Somewhat of, you know, it's common, but at the same time, it's it's not so common, particularly for those who are publicly involved in the psychedelic space. I I grew up in in West Michigan, um, which is a very conservative part of, of the states in the Midwest. Um, I had a very traditional, I would say, upbringing. Um, I was, you know, taught the, the typical things about cannabis and psychedelics, about how bad they were and a lot of the negative things around them. And then I tried cannabis for the first time when I was 16 and had some really enjoyable experiences. And a few years later, when I was 19, um, I did some psilocybin mushrooms uh, about halfway through my sophomore year of university. Where were you? Where were you? Where were you at the time then? I was I, I was in a, my my college house with two close friends. Uh, we did them in a basement. And listen to music. Uh-huh. Uh huh. This is after growing up in. Uh, this is after growing up in Western Michigan, where you went to high school. What city in, in Michigan did you uh, live in? I grew up in Grand Rapids, uh-huh. which is kind of like a furniture capital. Uh, Herman Miller and, and a few others are from there. Yes, and it has a very, a very. It's grounded in Dutch and German kind of Protestant Calvinist sort of mentality. Okay. Um, so I was raised in a Reformed church and, you know, did that whole thing. And then I went to a school, a liberal arts school, with about 3,000 students. That was also 
in the reform tradition. And so I was very much um, an outsider uh, as I started to get interested in psychedelics in this, in this process. I see. Okay, so we fast forward, and now you're a sophomore in college, and you're in the basement of this building, and you're trying... Psilocybin mushrooms. Okay. With, with two close friends. And it was, it was an interesting experience. Um, I, I noticed that I just had these strong feelings of nostalgia. I uh, was able to connect with my friends, but it, it, was, it was pretty minor. And then about five months later, uh, where I went to school was right by Lake Michigan. And so there's some beautiful sand dunes and woods that we go hiking in quite a bit. And so I ended up going out there with a few friends and taking LSD for the first time. And that, for me, was the really profound, impactful, beautiful experience of, you know, somewhat this ego dissolution, this sense of interconnectedness with, uh, you know, where I was hiking with my friends. And from that point forward, then, I, I became more and more interested in the psychedelic experience and, and what it represented. A couple of technical questions. When you're in the basement with a couple of friends and you're taking psilocybin for the first time, uh, how did you know how much to take and how much did you take? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think this was back in 2010, I believe. And so really the only resource online for education was Arrowhead. Um, and so I think we just maybe did some basic research on Arrowhead, or maybe I just listened to a friend of a friend and we took, I believe, two and a half to three grams of dried psilocybin mushrooms, um, just crushed them up, put them in like a sandwich and ate them. Um, but I don't, there wasn't like a lot of research done beforehand. It was more like there was a friend I trusted the same friend who introduced me to cannabis, introduced me to psilocybin mushrooms, and then I just listened to him. Um, but we really didn't know what we were getting into. Uh, oh. It was it was kind of like you, we were just going for it because we had heard a few things. Okay, it. and you trusted the friend, but you looked at Arrowwood. Listeners, Arrowwood, E-R-O-W-I-D, an excellent source for information on various psychedelics, Arrowwood. Uh, just two other sources to mention. Uh, I'm sure Paul will be talking about them today. One is uh, Dr. Jim Fadiman's book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Some of you may have heard my interviews with Jim Fadiman on this radio program on mind, body, health, and politics. And, of course, there's my recent book, Psychedelic Medicine, and that has a lot of information uh, on dosing and topics as well. Okay, so five months later, you take LSD for the first time, how did you know how much to take and how much did you take? That, and so that's another great question. I, I believe the first time I took it, it was, I want to say 100 to 150 micrograms between a dose and 1.5 doses. And again, it was the same sort of experience. It was a friend who had done it before in high school. He mentioned this is about how much you should do. I trusted him. He had mentioned Arrowhead to me as well, so we did some research. And then we took the, the, the LSD out at the beach and spent most, if not all, of the day there because it is a long experience. So, again, I, I, I wasn't really well informed in this whole process. I really didn't start to dig into the specifics about psychedelic use and, you know, the difference between a microdose to a, to a moderate to a high dose until, you know, I started this professional work when I was 25, 26. So... A lot of my initial experiences were somewhat amateur, um, and I think that's that's largely because, again, just 
from an educational perspective, uh, you know, when you're taught about these things in, in, in the public school system, which I grew up in, it's just don't do them at all. You know, they're prohibited, they're illegal, so don't touch them. So it really wasn't coming from an informed perspective at that point. Okay, take us forward now. You've had psilocybin with your friends in the basement. You've had LSD on the beach with some friends five months later. What happens in your life next? Yeah, so those early psychedelic experiences when I was about 19 and 20 were really impactful in terms of giving me the courage to pursue a more unconventional path. So this was end of my sophomore, beginning of my junior year of college. It was right around that time where I was, you know, starting to need to make a decision and a commitment about what I wanted to pursue professionally. And um, my early psychedelic use also happened to coincide with my path down, you know, this, this sense of personal development, or really trying to, um, uh, yeah, just, just uh, the, my, my initial kind of steps toward ambition and development and everything. And I was also traveling at that time. So I'd gone to Tanzania for a um, school trip between my sophomore and junior year. I'd spent six weeks in Europe between my junior and senior year. And so I made the decision then, um, after I graduated college, to, to basically move to Turkey and teach English there for a year. And that decision to kind of just go off and pursue a more unconventional path, uh, to not work in a sort of corporate job, um, to pursue experiences rather than kind of financial remuneration, all of that was informed by my psychedelic experiences. And, and, um, and how many had you had at that time when you graduated and went to teach? Uh, more than the initial two that you described? Yep. So after I initially did LSD, this is May 2010, I, over the next probably six months to a year, um, I did LSD and psilocybin mushrooms maybe 15 to 20 more times um, between that year, year and a half. And uh, so it was that, for me, it was, it brought me into this space and this presence of um, just like uh, clarity and focus. And I I was much more open, much more empathetic uh, for like the week after, you know, I had a really beautiful experience. It was this sort of afterglow effect, which actually kind of ties in to why I got into microdosing um, later on. Would you say that those experiences, maybe 15 to 20 experiences over a year and a half period, and roughly one a month, uh, would you say that those were um, the intent, your intention going into those experiences was one of personal enhancement and uh, expansion rather than, say, what might be called recreational use? Is that correct? Was I, that was my, yeah, that was, that was more my intention was the sense of deepening, like this is the same time I was getting into meditation, um, again, travel, so the sense of exploration, both of my external and internal um, reality. And so psychedelics, I noticed, provided clarity and insights into how I could continue to develop and grow as an individual. Um, and so I kept coming back to them because they, more than anything else, provided this um, deep sense of knowing or understanding that was hard for me to to access elsewhere. Given that you were uh, experimenting with your own life and you were using uh, illegal substances, 
What, if anything, were you able to do to ensure that what you were taking is what you wanted to be taking rather than something else? Yeah, that's 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 a great question, and I think that is a point that um, always should be brought up when publicly talking about this. In particular, with with LSD, it's always important to test. And, and at that time, um, I didn't know that. I didn't know that there were other substances that could be passed off as LSD that weren't LSD. So I just took it at face value um, from the friends that I got it from. I trusted them. Um, if I knew what I knew now, I would do that much differently. But unfortunately, I didn't have the education at that time to understand the importance of, of testing substances, which is, of course, why, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to start a website like The Third Wave, because uh, I think education about these, it's so important, particularly when we're looking at LSD compared to other potential research chemicals. Well, given that we live in a society which has uh, declared uh, certain substances illegal, a, a questionable constitutional uh, uh, development, but given that we do live in such a society and we do know that when we can't get various substances directly from laboratories that make them perfectly, and when we have to get them under what's called the black market, at, at times there are other things in what we're getting than what we think we're getting. It's well known, for example, that people use heroin often will get fentanyl and various other things that are dangerous. I know that uh, MDMA, which is used, has been used psychotherapeutically uh, when we've tested it on the street around the country very often we find that there's various mixes, uh, things in with the MDMA. I've never heard until you just mentioned it of LSD being doctored or mixed with something else. What can you tell us? What do you know about uh, other substances that get mixed in, sold as LSD? Yeah, so LSD typically because it is such a potent molecule, um, it's one of the most potent psychedelics because it's only like, you know, I think 20 to 25 micrograms that you need to have an experience. Uh, it's typically not mixed with anything. But what can happen is um, certain research chemicals, something called 25-IMBOME, will be passed off as LSD. And um, why that matters is LSD is non-toxic. So um, you can take, you know, you can drink a glass full of LSD and you're not going to die. You'll have a very intense experience, but it won't kill you. Um, whereas some of these other chemicals like 25-IMBOME that are passed off as LSD are toxic. And if you take too much, it can kill you. And so that's why it's really important to test, you know, if, if you're going to do something like LSD, test the substance to make sure that it's LSD. It won't be mixed, but it will be a very clear yes or no. It either is or it isn't. Uh, and that's different, obviously, than, you know, the MDMA, which sometimes can be mixed with amphetamines or, or you know, other things, for example. And by the way, folks, uh, you, some of you will recall that I interviewed on this program uh, Dr. Dave Nichols, who is considered one of, if not the foremost researcher in the United States, if not on the planet, uh, researcher of LSD, and he said uh, right here on uh, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, uncategorically that there has not been a death that is known from LSD. So he, that his work uh, and what uh, Paul Austin 
um, is saying here are completely identical. And that's important to know. But it's also important to know what Paul just brought to us, that uh, there are some of the cases where some of the people are pushing something else as if it's LSD and it's not. And that's why what Paul taught us about going to Arrowwood and, and looking for ways to have it tested. Do you know of any labs that currently exist in the United States, Paul, where people can send something in and get a anonymously but still get a report on what it is that they sent in? So you can get you can buy testing kits from like Dance Safe or Bunk Police. Uh, say um, it again, please, Paul. Yep, Dance Safe, which I think is is um, has a relationship with Map. Correct. And and Bunk Police is another one, and those are you know at home testing kits. There is not a place in the United States where you can send a substance to get it tested. However. There is a place in Barcelona, in Spain, a laboratory, that if you send LSD to and pay, I believe, about 70 euros, about 80 $85, they will test the LSD to measure the potency of it, uh, meaning whether it has 90 micrograms on a tab or 100 micrograms. So that is the only place in the world right now that does that testing. Do you know the name of that place? I do not okay. offhand. Um, so, so, folks, I guess you have to Google that. I guess you Google uh, LSD testing lab in Barcelona, Spain, and see what you come up with. Okay, well, let's come back now so you've, to your life story, which is an important story. Um, you've done now 15 or 20 psilocybin and LSD personal self-experiments over a period of a year, a year and a half. And then bring us forward into your in your life from there, please. Yeah, and so through that process, I really solidified, um, you know, my own vision of, of what I wanted to create uh, with my life. And I think for that, for me, it was pursuing experiences and relationships rather than, you know, what I think a lot of Western culture is now based around, which is more uh, consumerism and um, status. And so I chose to move to Turkey, where I taught English for a year. And then um, basically after teaching English for a year, I was really highly informed by uh, a guy named Tim Ferriss, who wrote a book called The 4-Hour Workweek, which is about how uh, we can now utilize and leverage technology to work remotely. So um, I basically took that skill set um, that I had developed while teaching English in Turkey and built my first online business around that, which was an online English school. And so I was teaching English uh, over Skype to students from around the world. And um, this was about in late 2014. And about in mid-2015, uh, that's when I started uh, the third wave or had the idea of the third wave. And because... I created enough financial independence through this first business venture, and because I felt comfortable enough uh, having the flexibility and freedom to move and live in various places. So when I was starting this business, I lived in Thailand, uh, in Chiang Mai, and then I lived in Budapest for a period of time. I felt comfortable starting a public website about psychedelic education. Um, the third wave, because I, I didn't feel like my livelihood was at risk 
for speaking out about these substances. Were you concerned about your freedom being at risk? So that's, that's kind of where, for me, I, I made the decision that if I really needed to, you know, I could live abroad and outside the United States for as long as I needed to. Um, so I was living in Thailand. I, I was living in Budapest. And, you know, of, of all the, the Western countries, the United States has one of the most draconian um, drug policies. And so if I had been living in the United States at the time, this is mid-2015, I wouldn't have felt comfortable starting this website. But because I was living abroad, I felt like it gave me a bit more freedom to openly speak about, about these topics. I want to underline that what you're talking about is talking. And there was a concern on your part about talking openly, mm. which is an interesting phenomenon in and of itself, to be hearing an American citizen saying that I was prepared to live in another country if my talking got me in trouble. Is that correct? That that was the the mindset, yeah, because I think when you're discussing a topic that's as taboo as psychedelics publicly, um, you know, we obviously have the sense of freedom of speech in the United States, but um, you don't know, there's no previous examples to show what's okay and, and what's not. And so I erred on the side of caution in that, you know, um, when talking about an explosive topic, like psychedelics, I, I didn't feel necessarily initially comfortable doing that in the United States. And I think that was partly just because I was talking about it outside of a medical context. And I was more talking about it from a personal use context outside of the traditional medical model. I interviewed uh, Ayelet Waldman on this program uh, about her book, uh, A Really Good Day, and Ayelet Waldman was a uh, formerly a federal defender. A, she's a lawyer, and she was a federal defender. And she said that she had consultations with her lawyers prior to publishing her book because they wanted to make sure that the events that she discussed in her book had happened in such a way as she was now outside the statute of limitations for being prosecuted for what she said in her book, which is a very sorry state of affairs, and it's, it's a sad thing to be saying that, but that is the reality. And so I can understand your apprehension when you got started and why you, uh, why you um, were willing to live outside the country rather than, than uh, possibly be prosecuted in our country for what you were saying with words about what you had done. Yeah, and what I had experienced, and I think for me, this this is this is a really important part of uh, changing the cultural conversation around psychedelics is um, is empowering more people to feel like they can speak about their psychedelic experiences, uh, and not only obviously to friends and family, but also publicly if they feel so inclined, um, because I think there is still just a, a strong stigma that exists culturally around these substances that many people feel like if they were to speak openly about it, 
I mean, A, of course, the, the potential legal ramifications, but even on a lesser level, potentially losing their job, potentially losing, you know, family members or friends, potentially losing the respect of whoever else it might be because, again, there's so much misunderstanding around these things that when you tell people, hey, I'm, I, I microdose or I'm doing psychedelics, automatically they come to certain assumptions about who you are and what you represent. And uh, I think that's really unfortunate because, by and large, the vast majority of people who use psychedelics, and this isn't everyone, but uh, the majority, I think, have positive uh, life-changing experiences. And I think that needs to be recognized and talked about more often in, in, in the public sphere. Well, obviously, something extremely positive happened to you because it changed the course of your life, and you've become what might be considered an evangelist for these medicines. So the, yeah. the, the, the positive has to have been very positive, and we really haven't gotten to what might be considered the most positive, which we're about to go into now, which is your whole personal experiment with microdosing. Yeah, so I... I, we we kind of left off with a story where I had moved to Budapest. Yes. And this is, this is mid-2015, uh, and my first business venture was doing uh, well enough, and I had a couple friends visit. And um, this was just a few months after Jim Fadiman's podcast came out on the Tim Ferriss show, uh, the Tim Ferriss podcast. Jim was on there talking about microdosing, and this is when we started to see the first articles and Rolling Stone and elsewhere about, you know, these techies who were microdosing for increased productivity and creativity. And um, I saw this podcast and I remember back to those early psychedelic experiences that I had where for, you know, a few three to five to seven days after uh, these moderate dose LSD experiences, I noticed this, this afterglow effect. I was, it was a bit easier for me to connect with other people. I'm a more introverted um, person, so I like to kind of keep to myself. And how that manifested when I was younger is in shyness and some level of kind of social awkwardness. And so I noticed that, um, you know, after I did LSD, it was easier for me to connect and talk with people. It was easier for me to focus on my studies. I made better decisions about, you know, going to the gym or eating healthy food. It was more, I was more disciplined in that because I was more mindful of um, of what I was putting into my body and how I was treating myself. And so I heard about microdosing, and, and kind of the thoughts that came to me is, okay, I experienced this afterglow from these high-dose, moderate-dose psychedelic experiences. How can I integrate that on an ongoing basis? And so that's why I started to microdose, because I assumed that I could get a lot of these afterglow effects that used to just last for maybe three or four days, and I could start to have those on an ongoing basis. And so I began microdosing in late June 2015 and then ended up microdosing two times a week uh, for about seven months in total. Okay, I'm going to underline that for our listeners. Paul mm -hmm. just said that he microdosed twice a week for a seven-month period. Paul, for those who haven't uh, heard my program with Ayelet Waldman or uh, are just learning about all this, tell, tell our listeners what a microdose means. Yeah, so a microdose is a sub-perceptible amount of a psychedelic. Uh, typically, it's LSD or psilocybin mushrooms, and the amount that someone takes for a microdose is about a tenth of a regular dose. So if 
a you know moderate regular dose of LSD is about 100 micrograms, then a microdose is going to be about 10 micrograms. And when um, and when you so, say when you say subperceptible, please explain exactly what you mean by subperceptible. So Jim Fadiman is really kind of you know he's the godfather of microdosing. He's the one that has defined a lot of these things. And what he says now, just to be a bit more precise, is it's subperceptible from a visual perspective, meaning that when you microdose, there are no visuals, nothing is changing. What people are noticing is they just have a little bit more energy. They're a little bit more present. Um, they might have a, a slight sense of, uh, like, touch or smell or taste. Um, but, but, again, visually, nothing is changing whatsoever. Everything is kind of remaining the same in terms of how we perceive uh, reality. In Ayelet Waldman's book, A Really Good Day, she says that why she called the book A Really Good Day is she took the microdose in the morning noticed nothing whatsoever for the entire day. But at the end of the day, she reflected on it, and she said, wow, I had a really good day. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was about, noticing nothing for the entire day, but then noticing she'd had a really good day, and she wasn't used to having a really good day because she suffered from depression for 20 years. Right, and she had tried, I believe, a number of, of medications. To Every medication in the pharmacopoeia she tried. This is an educated <laughs> woman with a lot of contacts, married to a very famous man, and uh, she had tried everything. And nothing right. and then nothing worked. It, nothing had worked, and I think she was on the verge of, of, of suicide, it, if I remember. It, very serious, and, very serious. And the, the microdosing LSD significantly helped. And so, yeah, it's just these slight, very oh-so-slight improvements both on the day of, so a really good day. But also, what I noticed over that seven-month period is it's also a substantial improvement over an extended period of time, or what we refer to as a microdosing protocol, um, which Jim has kind of formalized uh, with a lot of his initial research, Jim Fadiman, as the two times a week for five weeks or eight weeks or however long an individual feels like it's helping them to improve their quality of well-being. Two times a week for five to ten or maybe even a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Paul Austin. He's the founder of the third wave. The third wave is something, if you're interested in these psychedelic medicines you're going to want to google just google third wave you'll be right there and you'll read all kinds of information about psychedelic medicines again we're here with the founder of the third wave paul austin and here we are on mind body health and politics and i'm your host dr richard miller so seven months go by you've now done the microdosing roughly one-tenth of what's considered a moderate dose, a low dose of LSD, 100 micrograms. You're taking approximately 10 micrograms a day. What happens after the seven months, Paul? Yeah, so for me, there were two, two to three really big changes. Um, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, I'm, I'm someone who in social situations, I'm, I'm more introverted. And so when I would be in social situations, I was often in my head. And it was hard for me to really engage in the moment and be present. 
Uh, and so I noticed that when I microdose, I was much more engaged socially. It was much easier for me to um, be completely present with people when I was at dinner or when I was uh, spending time with friends in the evening. And so over that seven-month period, I just noticed it was easier and easier for me to connect with people, which was really um, important. And then the, the second thing, uh, the second main thing was just, again, from a creativity uh, perspective, I noticed that it significantly helped me to, with the envisioning process, the ideation process of uh, the, you know, the third wave and, and the business that I was running, um, and that uh, it was easier for me to, A, access something called flow, uh, which is this sense of being in the zone, where when you're either working on a project or maybe going surfing or um, even with things like sex, for example, we, we enter this sense of selflessness. Um, and I noticed then through the microdosing protocol, it was easier for me to access those states on an ongoing basis which just led to more creative output um, when I was working on projects. So those, for me, were the two, two big things uh, that changed as a result of, uh, you know, the microdosing protocol, personally. By the way, some of you listening are going to want to research the zone and what Paul Austin is talking to us about the zone. The zone has been described by athletes, by creatives, by psychologists, but it's been described by many people as a kind of hyper-focused, sometimes spiritual state of mind where it seems that anything is possible, that we're in a, a zone where time collapses, where sounds can fall away, where suddenly 6, 8, 10, 12 hours can go by, and we look at our watch and, oh my gosh, 8 hours just went by. It's, it's what you might project is what animals your family dog lives in. They live in a state of a flow. They live in a zone, and, and they move gracefully and effortlessly along their path. And that's what uh, Paul Austin is talking to us about. Correct? That's correct. And there's, there is an excellent book um, that has now been nominated for a Pulitzer um, called Stealing Fire by Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel. That's Stealing Fire, which... I would highly recommend for anyone interested in the state because it talks about not only microdosing, but also things like meditation and extreme sports and how um, those can be utilized to access low state. Stealing fire. Thank you, Paul. I'll uh, contact those folks. Maybe we'll get them on the program. That'd be great. Yeah. Uh, so during the seven months that you're doing twice a week microdosing, it sounds like you were doing it uh, you you chose LSD over psilocybin, and if so, uh, tell us why, or tell us what you can tell us about the two different uh, medicines and microdosing with them. Yeah, so I, when I was microdosing for the seven months, I chose to microdose with LSD um, simply because I had access to that, um, but I didn't have access to psilocybin mushrooms. Um, I've also, since that time, microdosed with psilocybin mushrooms. Um, and like I said, with LSD, a microdose is usually between 10 to 15 micrograms. Um, for some people, it's as low as 5 or as high as 20. Um, with psilocybin mushroom, it tends to be from 0.1 grams to 0.5 grams. Um, and what I personally noticed 
when I microdose with LSD is I tend to be much more engaged in my external kind of world. So with social ability, uh, if I go out or I'm I'm doing something social, I prefer to microdose with LSD. Uh, If I'm working on a creative project, so when my energy is going outwards, LSD helps that process. Whereas if I'm doing inner work, so meditation, self-reflection, I'm trying to deepen my sense of self-understanding, psilocybin mushrooms uh, are better for that for me. Um, and this kind of, you know, my own personal experience is, is not necessarily reflective of what other people may experience, although from the stories and various people that I've talked to who have microdosed, it seems like that's common um, for people compare, you know, comparing LSD to psilocybin mushrooms. We're going to open up the phones now, Paul. Let's see if any of our listeners will have a question for you. The number here is 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707-937-5103. If you have a question about uh, microdosing with LSD, psilocybin, uh, you want to ask Paul Austin a question, just give us a ring, 707-937-5103. So, if I understand what you're bringing to us, the microdosing with the LSD, you might call more of an outer experience, and the microdosing with the psilocybin might be referred to as more of an inner experience. Uh, do you is that correct? That would be yeah. That would be a great way of, of summarizing it. Mm-hmm. So the you're also telling us, and correct me if if if, I, if I'm mistaken here. But you also sound like you're telling us that perhaps after your first experience with either of these two substances, uh, the LSD or the, or the psilocybin, uh, microdosing, that after that you can use them and go about your daily routine, whatever it happens to be. Right. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, and so that's why, you know, I, the, the ethos that you read about the third wave at the beginning of the show, you know, the practical measured use for specific tangible benefits, um, I think that for me is where psychedelic use is going is from my own perspective now, I know that if I just want to have easier access to flow states, have something that's very subtle, um, then I might take 10 micrograms of LSD. If I'm in a frame of mind where I really, you know, want to be a bit more creative, kind of let my mind wander a little bit more, maybe go on a hike in the woods, I might take 25 micrograms of LSD. If I want to do deep inner work, you know, therapeutic or spiritual work, that might be 100 micrograms of LSD. So I think this, for me, when we're talking about microdosing specifically, you know, that's how I utilize it now, where I just might do it. I don't have a two times a week protocol, but just every now and then, if I have maybe a talk that I'm giving, uh, I will sometimes microdose with LSD before that, uh, because it helps me to be more articulate, to be more expressive, to be more energetic. And so I'm, I'm looking at how we can fine tune that process to um, experience certain things in you know our, our waking state. And by the, by the way, folks, if you go to Paul's website called The Third Wave, it's really, it's an excellent, it's an excellent uh, website. I can't speak uh, highly enough of it, really. You have to see it 
to, to understand what a professional job he's done about uh, laying out both with words and with pictures, uh, great little pictures, um, all of what he's saying on this program in terms of increased energy output, more you know, physical energy, emotional balance, spiritual awareness, uh, going into dosages. You really want to take, if you're going to experiment, I mean, there are certain things that, uh, that you just want to do in advance. And one of them, as we said, is, is Jim Fadiman's book. You might want to look at my book, Psychedelic Medicine. You definitely want to look at Jim Fadiman's book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. You want to look at Arrowid, of course, the, the website that uh, Paul Austin mentioned. But you've got to look at this third wave. It, uh, Paul, I've got to congratulate you. I mean, it's a beautifully and, uh, done website with a lot of great educational material on it. Um, Thank you so much, Richard. That's, yeah. that's really that's really sweet of you. To yeah. Say. Well, this is a real contribution. You you've done a, such a professional job here. Um, we now have to talk about. I've got some minutes left, and we've got to talk about something that uh, that we just have to talk about, which is um, the downside. Because people mm-hmm. uh, people are asking you, they want to know, you know, what what bad <laughs> what bad thing can happen to me, right? What bad thing? So please. Uh, what, what can you tell us about, if any, if any, you don't have to make up something, but if any, what are the downsides of microdosing? What are the negative effects that you know of, if any? So, you know, a lot of what, or some of what I know about the negative effects come from my own personal experience, um, which I've also then kind of validated by talking to Stephen Kotler, the author of Stealing Fire. And one of those um, is things can go up to speed up too fast. So um, as I was microdosing, when you spend too much time in that state, you know, that state of flow, sometimes you can be more impulsive. Um, There's not as much of a filter uh, to actually, like, maybe, you know, have some sort of discretion about what you should say and what you shouldn't say. And what I noticed personally as well is it, it made me a little disembodied, meaning I wasn't as aware of what I needed to do for uh, maintaining a high level of well-being long-term. And so basically things were moving too quick in my life, and that led to, um, you know, some fatigue and, and burnout. So I think that for me is one. I think two, and this is from Jim Fadiman, people who suffer with just general anxiety who are looking at microdosing, sometimes microdosing can make their anxiety worse. And so it's seeming to be very effective as an antidepressant, um, but in terms of for general anxiety, um, it, it, it's hit or miss. With some people it works, but for other people it makes it worse. Yes, yeah, so folks, if you can conceptualize depression as being, picture a depression, like a depression in the sand is you know, a little concave area. Depression is a pushing down. So something that is innervating, like a microdose, a little tiny bit, is going to pick you up. However, on the other side of depression is anxiety. Anxiety, as we all know, is a kind of buzz that has a, 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 an emotional feeling with it that something bad's going to happen. So what you might call it a bad buzz. And if you already have a little buzz, then you take something which gives you a little more of a buzz... I, what Paul's saying is that possibly could exacerbate the anxiety. Uh, of course, the quickest antidote 
to anxiety and to any kind of anxiety you got from any of these psychedelic medicines is to sit down or lay down and do abdominal breathing for four or five minutes and that'll stabilize your system in in the majority of cases and uh, I those of you who who suffer from anxiety really want to learn how to be expert abdominal breathers it's faster than a speeding valium and I promise you that um, do you know of people who are, are presently uh, also engaging in research collection, data collection on a personal level? Are people doing this, Paul, the way you did and bringing it out? What's your feeling about that? Yeah, so I can give you a little insight into that. So what we've now offered is we've started basically a, a kind of microdosing course in community. And so we have uh, several several hundred people in there, many of whom are actively tracking uh, how microdosing is impacting them through um, both quantitatively through a spreadsheet in terms of measuring how their energy is changing or their mood, but also qualitatively just through journaling um, and through a workbook that we provide. And so that I know is more in our internal um, community of people who are tracking microdosing and doing it. I, I know we also, just generally speaking, get about 70,000 people every month that come to our website about microdosing specifically. Um, and that's largely through search engines, Google. But that just gives you a sense for, you know, this, that's, we probably get between 50 and 60% of traffic. So there are probably anywhere from 100 to 120,000 people every month who are actively searching for information about microdosing. Um, so it's, it's a trend that I think has grown in popularity. And, you know, my assumption is that it will only continue to grow in popularity um, because of, A, just generally all the psychedelic research that's going on. Um, I think, B, because of the failure of certain pharmaceuticals to treat a lot of these um, issues that people are having, whether that's with depression or PTSD or, you know, some of these other medical issues. And I think there's also just a growing move towards being your best self or self-optimization. And um, there's a lot of people who are interested in microdosing for that. Just they're already fairly healthy. Functionally, they're, they're, things are going along quite well, but they want to reach this level of peak performance. And I think microdosing, there are a lot of people who are microdosing for that as well. Would you say that your experimentation with these various psychedelic medicines from the start until today has contributed in a positive way towards your health regimen, be it exercise, nutrition, rest, and so on? It's, it's been the most beneficial or impactful thing that I've done. That and meditation are the two kind of cornerstones of my self-care practice that I think are largely responsible for not only just my general physical well-being, but also for my ability to produce and create something that I think is a contribution towards ideally, you know, just moving humanity in, in, a, in a slightly better direction. Um, and I, I think psychedelics for me are, are largely what, what, what is responsible for that, that transformation. Well, thank you, Paul Austin, for being with us today on, on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And thank you for your message about all of us bringing our higher angels into our daily lives. 
and taking, as you put it, good self-care. I hope to have you back on the program, maybe in about uh, some time in the future, so we can keep up on your important work, and hope you will come back. And thank you all, our listeners, to tuning in today to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'll be back in exactly two weeks, and we're going to be talking to the uh, Tony Butner, who is the brother of Mr. Butner, who started the Blue Zones and who wrote the book, The Blue Zones. You're going to want to hear about how people are living 10 years longer than the rest of us and are doing so robustly. Until two weeks from now, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth working hard for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them 